I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. Regardless of your position on the coronavirus, it revealed that many of our households aren't prepared for a true national crisis or even a local one. So we've invited speaker and author John Moody on the show to talk about getting prepared and taking some small steps towards homesteading. Joined by John Moody, the author of The Frugal Homesteader and other books, we brought on John as part of a trio of episodes on making your household productive. Last time, we did side hustles with Matt Williams. Next time, we're going to look at the overall health of your home with Eric Kahn. But on Twitter, I mentioned some of the steps we took as a family back in February to prepare for the potential fallout of COVID-19, and someone asked me to do a show on preparedness. And the thing is, I I don't really want to do a show on that because I don't think I was as prepared as I should be, and I'm certainly not an expert in that area. So we wanted to invite someone on that has a lot of experience, knows what he's talking about, so we brought on John. John, thanks for being on. Why don't you tell the people about yourself? So um, I grew up Northeast Ohio, city called Youngstown, pretty typical, you know, urban kid of the 1980s video game playing breakfast cereal eating cartoon watching and um my dad was big into hunting and fishing and so got some of those skills growing up um, but also came from a kind of really broken messed up home background at the same time alcoholism divorce all kinds of craziness in in the background of my family And the Lord saved me when I was in college. Um, And so that just began a slow process of learning to be a man in light of God's word. Um, And that led us down a number of different roads. It got me moved to Kentucky to go to seminary. Uh, When I was at seminary, I met my future, now current wife. Um, And in the midst of all that, we decided to move out onto 35 acres of land outside the city and start homesteading and farming. Why did you guys decide to do that? That's a big step, especially if you're a city kid. Yeah, three main reasons. Um, One was um, my health. So when I was in seminary, I developed duodenal ulcers. And you know, even though by American standards, I would have been considered like pretty average health, which means you're, you know, on drugs a number of times a year, you have seasonal allergies, you have dental decay, you need antibiotics and the like. Um, you know, that, that, that's like the American standard of what is like moderately healthy is very low. And eventually I developed duodenal ulcers. Um, which still kept me in like the moderate healthy category, according to my doctor, which is when I realized that the categories they used for health did not make any actual sense. (laughs) Um, And so I was able to heal my seasonal allergies, my duodenal ulcers. I have not had a dental cavity in 20 some years through changing, um, you know, basically changing like what we thought was food, where you get that food from and how you prepare that food. 
Um, and so like we cleared up just a massive host of health problems for me um, over the course of about 14, 16 months of slow incremental changes to our lifestyle. Um, so that was one reason. Second reason was the influence of writers like Francis Schaefer. Um, you know, Francis, you know, says in numerous places that just like, you know, people aren't made to be trapped in places where steel and concrete cut off the sun and everything around them is synthetic and hectic and unnatural. Growing up, since I did hunt, since I did go fishing, and even though we were urban where we lived, the street I grew up on dead-ended into the Mill Creek Park system. And anybody who's familiar with the Mill Creek Park system up in Youngstown, Ohio, knows it's one of the most amazing park systems you could possibly have in a city. Um, Just a truly amazing place to have, you know, 30 seconds out your back door as a kid. So influence of a number of different authors like Schaefer um, really wanted me to move out of the city. And then just the direction I was going with work and interests and stuff made me really want to have land to pursue some of the things I wanted to work on. So all those things kind of came together. So we finally decided to make the jump and started looking for land outside the Louisville metro area. I left Kansas City to live on my grandmother's farm just outside Osgood, Indiana. When I was six years old, we had goats and horses and cows and chickens, a bunch of fruit trees and two large gardens. It was a 14-acre farm surrounded by hundreds of acres of woods to explore. It was a real good medicine for a city boy. And I want that for my family. So Emily and I are looking at buying some land east of Cincinnati right now to do that on a much smaller scale. And that's where I'm interested for our listeners and for people that are interested in homesteading and preparedness, but maybe they're not going to go all crazy in. They just want to take some simple, small steps towards improving in those areas. So let's start with preparedness. What are some steps that people can take? Incremental steps. Yeah. So preparedness, um, the big mistakes I tend to see are one is like people think that they can substitute good thinking and adequate skills by buying a bunch of stuff. And you see this right now in our culture, you know, this is why you go into Costco or you're going to a local grocery store and it looks out like a scene out of a post-apocalyptic movie because like the, the people think they can cover over their inability to deal with bad situations merely by throwing money at them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, you know, and people do this, you know, if they buy a homestead or they try and get into farming, I see this all the time as well, where they just think they can spend their way to success or safety. And, and that's just like, you know, it, it fits very well with our culture because our culture tends to think it can solve problems by throwing money at them. If that just isn't how this works at all. Mm. Uh, you know, so. 
So I shouldn't be going out buying those big those big barrels of food that James Baker sells. Jimmy Baker sells like these. Uh, <laughs> it's like uh, like a paint barrel full of macaroni that is good for fifty years or something. <laughs> oh man, it's it, it always makes me sad. Well, you know when I encounter people, but I was really happy to see that like Costco and other stores are restricting returns on panic buying. Um, that, that hopefully will like really teach people this lesson in a practical way. Because mm-hmm. people be... will never, don't never have to buy toilet paper again. But <laughs> there's still not toilet paper in there. And I, I mean, I, I stored up, I thought something was wrong in February. So I stored up enough, I think, to carry us through for a while, assuming toilet paper comes back in March, I hope. But yeah, I'm glad they're doing that too. You know, there, there's a number of different ways to think about preparedness. Um, you know, the more and preparedness has a number of different areas because, you know, again, it doesn't matter how much stuff you have if you don't have the skills to use it. And it doesn't matter what skills you have and what stuff you have if you don't have the mental, emotional maturity to make good decisions and to know how to use that stuff in the right way at the right time. So, and, you know, I, I got in a little bit of trouble. Um, I was invited to be a featured speaker at an event called Prepper Camp this past fall. Mm. Um, and, and so this is one of the biggest prepper conferences in the nation. Um, and it's down at a in, secret location. No, not at a secret <laughs> I'm location. I'm just joking. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, I got there and I kind of was watching, you know, what the crowd was you know, what did this crowd generally look like was who was my audience? And I quickly added a point to one of my talks. Um, and, and, and in this talk, I basically said, a lot of you need to sell your extra Glock and get a membership at gold's gym. Yeah. I'm sure they love that. Oh, you know, because like a lot of them were just, um, you know, what does it matter if you have three AR 15s, and you're like easily pushing 50, 60% risk for heart attack, stroke, and diabetes. They can't help it. It's a hormonal disorder, man. They can't, right? <laughs> well, and you know, so, so preparedness, um, you know, especially when like I do individual coaching for families or guys, I, I try and give them a really well-rounded understanding of, it all starts with understanding like, what are the actual significant issues and problems that might hit your family? All right. So we're not talking about like EMPs or a Russian invasion. <laughs> what are, what, what are some of those big areas that people need to be thinking about? So you're saying a lot of this is mindset. So- yeah, well, and, and a lot of it is just like, now the thing is, um, was my family prepared for a coronavirus panic pandemic? Well, no, not specifically, but because of our general level of preparedness, we were still prepared for that to some degree. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, we're like, if you couple biblical wisdom with like some practical common sense, you really cover your bases for a wide variety of what Providence might throw at you instead of ending up with like really strange, expensive gear and gadgets. 
that quite honestly are going to be nothing but a useless expense sitting in your closet gathering dust. Let's say if a guy came to you, you know, three months ago before this all was going down and said, Hey, I just want to take a couple steps towards getting my, my house prepared for, you know, just general emergencies. What were a few steps you should take? What would you tell him? Um, the first thing I would be like is what um, is your general medical supplies look like? And do you know how to take care of a wide variety of basic medical things that might crop up? Um, you know, so, you know, just people running around with no basic medical kits or they buy like El Cheapo medical kit off of, you know, at a Walmart or somewhere that, you know, basically has a bunch of overpriced, worthless stuff inside. Um, I'm, I'd ask, you know, can you go two to three weeks without hitting up a grocery store? Um, you know, so do, do you have a, a deep enough pantry that a snowstorm or some other strange event disrupting food um, doesn't result in your family, you know, basically, you know, mutinying on your ship? Because you know, one, one way to think about a family is it's a ship. You're the captain. So what are the things that are going to cause your crew to take up pitchforks against you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what are the most likely problems you are going to run into as captain of your ship? Not sharing the Wi-Fi password. <laughs> no, that's good. Uh, so med- medical stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm blessed to have married a wife or a nurse pantry yeah and anything else you know part of pantry is water um you know so do you have a way to quickly store extra water um because you know like all sorts of things you know water going out is a more common issue especially in certain parts of the country um you know a few years ago we had that really terrible cold stretch Mm -hmm. um that, you know, even Kentucky, we got down to like minus 30 degrees at night for three straight nights, which is pretty unheard of in Kentucky. Kentucky's not made for minus 30 degrees. Mm-hmm. And so like everybody was losing water. People were even losing, you know, their septics or their, you know, and if you lose water in the city, you also lose toilet. And like, well, what you going to do? What is your game plan if you, if the pooper don't? don't evacuate the deposit. Uh, you know, so just a lot of basic stuff like that, where um, how do you handle a wide variety of relatively common problems? Um, you know, financial preparedness is another thing I help people with. The, the, the less monthly payments you have to other people, the more resilience and preparedness you will have for almost anything, um, you know, because all kinds of people right now who are out of work because of, you know, what's going on, but, or just if you get laid off without warning, um, or if something happens and, you know, your boss just lets you go unjustly or without reason, if you have, you know, dozens of monthly bills that you're just making, it doesn't matter how deep your pantry is or other stuff like that's going to buy you a little bit of time. Um, but, but really cutting down on debt you are carrying and improving your overall financial position 
um, is just a crucial part of any preparedness plan. 100% agree. That's where we've been focusing as a family. We're probably by the end of this year, we won't have any payments except those that are basic utilities. And we've been using Dave Ramsey kind of combined with You Need a Budget, which is a really helpful software that I recommend. One thing we also started doing is keeping not just a checking account emergency fund, but also an emergency fund in cash uh, in our safe. <laughs> Matter of fact, recently a woman at a bank, a friend told me that she took out $300,000 in cash. So people are totally tripping out right now. But uh, what do you recommend? What, what's a resource that you would recommend on getting in financial shape? Ooh, I mean, I like Ramsey overall. Um, you know, I think the hard thing with financial, um, I, you know, in terms of like a straight up secular resource that you have to take with a grain of salt, um, I think Tim Ferriss's four hour work week. Oh uh, yeah. That book's excellent. Yeah. The, the thing I really liked about that book and something that some other authors have pointed out is a lot of people try to get to um, being fiscally sound by cutting expenses. And th- there, you know, there's obviously some wisdom and prudence to that. Obviously my one book, the frugal homesteader handbook frugality is all about like not needlessly spending money, but at the same time, cutting expenses is a constantly diminishing return endeavor. You know, like it, it's very easy to cut that first thousand dollars of expenses. It's like it becomes harder and harder. It, it takes more effort for less return to make mm-hmm. progress. And so I really like resources that focus on not so much cutting expenses, but increasing your value. Mm-hmm. You have to have a good uh, defense, right? Hanging on to your money, but also a good offense producing money. Yeah. Because again, at the end of the day, like you can only cut expenses so much. Yep. And, you know, we have five kids. We've had years um, since I've basically been self-employed almost the entire time Jess and I have been married. We've had tremendous years financially and we've had incredibly lean years, um, especially because of our business plan starting four years ago. Um, we went into basically a very lean two and a half, three year, you know, run, knowing it was going to be a little bit leaner. And we were going to invest, though, in building value that would hopefully then pay off for a long time to come. That's a good lead into your elderberry business, which you have a book on, and homesteading. Uh, Why don't you explain your interest in elderberries and how it led to a business? Yeah, well, so I speak at a bunch of conferences around the country, and um, I just decided because, you know, doing some kind of market research and knowing my audiences, I was like, man, there's like a lot of interest in this plant. And the plant has a super cool history and we've been growing it on our homestead probably for eight or so years. So had a fair bit of familiarity with the plant. And so, and uh, we have an elderberry syrup business that originally started out, you know, so we have five kids and when each of our kids gets to about eight to nine years old, 
they are required to have their own business. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and, and, you know, cause you don't, you know, if you're a nine year old kid in our family, we feed you three square meals a day, but you help raise the food for those meals. You help feed the pigs, you help plant the garden, you help collect the eggs. So it's, it's not like a free lunch. And, but, you know, beyond those three square meals and stuff, uh, you know, we do judo, jujitsu as a family. So my kids want to compete in tournaments. I don't pay their tournament fees. What I do is provide a way for them to make really good money so that they can pay their tournament fees. Um, and so my daughter had a really small elderberry syrup business. And, and so just, you know, it was a number of things that came together for us growing this plant, my daughter having this little side hustle business with this plant, me doing these speaking engagements and seeing the interest um, that I wrote that book and it kind of just supported all these other things we were already doing. That's cool. You know, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't know what an elderberry is. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. You don't because up until about 60, 70 years ago, there wasn't a person for the past 2000 years of history in the Northern hemisphere who generally could not easily recognize the elder. Hmm. Um, the, the, is it growing a tree or a bush? What it's it's in between like a tree and a shrub. Okay, I gotcha. Um, and it, it's the most medicinally used plant, basically in human history. Hmm. Um, and again, up until like the early 1900s, um, everybody knew what it was. If you're a Monty Python fan, you know it's even a joke in his movies. Your mother yeah. was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. That's the only that's the only reference I know. My kids say that around the house <laughs> constantly, when, especially when we talk of the French. Um, yeah, the insulting Frenchman. <laughs> so oh. you guys you guys sell elderberry syrup is one of your businesses, correct? Yeah, that's one of the ones we have and and that's one you know about you know, three years ago we began to invest in the business some to see where it would go. And then last year, we really put a lot of investment into the business, and the timing couldn't have been more perfect with what happened this winter. Wow. What, so, what, I mean, what happened this winter? Oh, I mean, like our business grew probably 10x, so 1,000% growth between the really bad flu season oh, okay. coupled with the coronavirus pandemic. Um, <laughs> It's, you know, we were like perfectly positioned in terms of like a business that just things could not have gone much better for overall, long as we don't lose our certified kitchen this week. <laughs> I was in the church planning movement about 15 years ago where everything was towards the city, towards the city, kind of the Tim Keller emphasis. And uh, there was this, I saw a lot of young people move that direction uh, I was one of them. And then we all started having kids and we we're like, wow, there's, there, there's some benefits to the city, but it's pretty hard to raise a family in the city. And, and I'm seeing now a, a trend. I call it the revenge of Wendell Berry. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and you know, Wendell Berry, anyone that's kind of 
talking about productive homes, you'll run into them eventually. And he, he's a mixed bag, in my opinion. We're, we're now looking at moving back out into a smaller town where we can have influence, the church plant, and to, to start a farm so our kids have that sort of connection, some of the things you're doing. But we're not going all in. I'm not trying to, I'm not going to be selling organic meat to anyone. I don't care. That's not my thing. I'm going to continue to work in, at, at a corporation and all that. And I think a lot of people are like me, that they want to take a step back to that life and towards that productivity and that connection to the land and animals and all that for their sake and for their children's sake. What would you say to the what I would call the reasonable homesteader, someone that wants some of this, but that's not, you know, they're not a Joel Salatin wannabe. That's just not there. They're not there. How, how do we take steps towards that? Do we have to get 35 acres? What can we do with one acre or three acre or five? And, and, and why is it something we should consider? Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd say is what can you do where you are right now? Uh, so th- this is something Joel Salatin says that really stuck with me because if you think, well, I'm, I'm going to grow food when I'm on, you know, 35 acres, but I'm not going to grow food where I am now. You're probably not going to grow food successfully when you finally get 35 acres. Uh, so the, the big thing I always tell people is what are you doing or what can you do right now? Yeah, because you great. can homestead in an urban environment. Yep, we're doing square foot gardening, and we're going to play around with uh, potatoes in a barrel, though I'm told that's a bad idea. but uh, <laughs> You'll we'll find out, get to report back. Okay, all right. <laughs> you know, so they're like, I have tons of friends up in Louisville. Um, one of the best, most successful homesteaders I know lives in the heart of Louisville in St. Matthews. And he raises something like 50 to 60% of the food him and his wife eat on a tiny lot of land. Wow. And so, so, so again, the biggest thing is if you eventually want to have a few acres, um, you know, you want to have a couple animals, you want to have a decent sized garden, then what are you doing right now to cultivate the skills and the mindset needed to succeed when you finally get there? And this is kind of in line with what you were saying earlier, that everyone wants to spend money, right? In, in the sense that someone wants to prepare, they go out and buy a big prepared set. Um, and, and this is now is just applied at a larger level to buying a farm, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, or, you know, the, the, the thing that always raises the heckles of my audience, because I like to raise the heckles of my audience, is when I give my frugal homesteading talk, is I, I always point out like most men, the reason they want to buy a homestead, do you know what they really want to buy? Peace and quiet? No, a tractor. <laughs> they it's are true cool. That, like most guys are like, I'll get to buy a tractor. Do you know what a tractor is? A tractor is a gigantic piece of metal rusting away to nothing in your yard. Like, so, you know, we have now farmed and homesteaded for about a decade. 
and we own no heavy equipment. Like I, I have a farm truck and I'm actually selling my farm truck yet still farming and homesteading. And people look at me just like, how, how are you raising pigs without a truck? Like, how are you doing all these things you have to do on a farm without a, even a truck, let alone without a tractor? And I'm just like, cause you really don't need those things. <laughs> you think you need those things, but all they are is giant capital sinks that for the majority of people have little to no return on investment. You know, start where you are, even if that is just growing some herbs on your windowsill. Um, when I was in seminary, I bought a couple earth boxes, which are like these little, you know, containers to grow veggies in. And we were living in an apartment. I basically got permission from my landlord to move the earth boxes all around our apartment complex um, and grow in. So, and, and this was long before we even thought about moving out of the city. Um, one of my personal heroes is a congressman by the name of Thomas Massey. Um, he has a like 35 minute documentary on the off grid homestead him and his family built. Hmm. Super, super cool guy. But what really impresses me about him is him and his wife, while they were attending school at MIT. Um, you know, so him and his wife are like mad super geniuses from Appalachia, Kentucky. I love it. And, and so they're at MIT of all places. And they they had a garden while they were in school together at MIT. Like a, along a walking path in the student dorm area, they put in a garden. Uh, you, you know, and, and so that's the kind of mindset if, if you can't grow veggies while you're in college, I doubt you're going to be successful buying any amount of acres and, and growing veggies there. Because mm. what's going to make you successful is that, that internal commitment. Um, you know, another thing, especially if you are thinking about moving out of the city, um, you, you know, this is one thing we wish we would have done better. We didn't know at the time. You really want to do good reconnaissance on where you're moving and make sure there will be enough like-minded families and enough solid church choices to provide community. Mm -hmm. uh, because a ton of people we know who moved out have ended up moving again and again because, yeah, they're, you know, like, yeah, the house was great on the land they got or the land was great or this or that, but then they realized there wasn't like any other families like them and with kids and stuff for 30 minutes and 30 miles. Wow. So their land is great and their homestead is great and they're learning skills and things, but they have no support network or community. So you're going to have to balance you know, your budgetary constraints and possible places to move or purchase with, you know, social and other needs that a family creates, because those are very, very easy to overlook. So let's say someone does get three to five acres. What's a good first animal? Or what's a good beyond gardening? Everyone's getting chickens, chickens and goats. Oh, yeah. I see them everywhere. Yeah. Chickens are great um, because... 
when when you accidentally kill them, it's a low cost loss compared to any and all other livestock. <laughs> so, and, and I don't say that to be mean. It's just the fact of life that most likely you are going to make some mistakes with animals. I'll tell, um, you know, tell a funny story here. I think I tell it in my one book, but um, it was a Friday night. And I got a phone call from this family we know who's just tremendously awesome, super loving family. Uh, but they live in basically like a suburban environment. Uh, but they had bought some additional land a little bit farther out. And they bought this land and they're really hoping eventually to like jettison the suburbs because where they lived wasn't the suburbs at first. And it eventually became the suburbs. It's like Louisville gobbled it up. And they really wanted to get kind of back out into the country a little bit more. So they bought this land. And they're like, oh, well, if we're going to have land, we need to have animals on this land. So they bought six cows, but not just six cows, six bread cows, <laughs> who soon became 12 cows. Oh. Because, you know, they dropped their calves. Everything's great. So now, you know, like they live in the suburbs, they work in downtown Louisville. And they have a piece of property even, you know, so they're like 45 minutes from work and then maybe another like 45 minutes to the farm they bought. One family, three locations. They're like a mega church waiting to have it. <laughs> um, and, and so, um, you know, so now they have 12 cows. These are people, you know, had a small garden, have had some chickens, but otherwise, you know, have it really like slowly accrued the skills and other things. And they're not even present where these animals are. So what do cows do? Cows get out. Cows are faulty fence-finding champions. Um, so they start getting calls, meaning that they're having to drive out to the farm to figure out where the cows are getting out and what, you know, whatnot. And they end up eventually bringing the cows into the suburbs because they live right next to a horse farm. So they convince the horse farm people to let them keep the cows there for the time being while they figure out. And basically this all culminates with like the cows getting out in their, you know, half million dollar McMansion neighborhood <laughs> and totally flipping out, you know, all the neighbors who, you know, have these like perfectly manicured lawns and 50 to hundred thousand dollar cars. And there's cows wandering down the streets, eating their rhododendrons and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> And so, you know, um, the, the way I put it in my one talk is always start small. Um, you know, you are not going to regret doing a 500 square foot garden and <laughs> succeeding. You are always going to regret putting in a 5,000 square foot garden and failing. <laughs> mm. And so, you know, like... People go to Tractor Supply. Oh, baby chicks are on sale. I was going to buy five. I might as well buy 50. Oh, I know we were only going to get one goat and now we have six. <laughs> uh, you know, so like you're never going to regret starting small, letting that test your skills and your infrastructure and building on those early successes. Mm-hmm. I have never, ever met anyone who started big and it worked out well. 
<laughs> so it just it just never ever ever not once have i seen that equation pencil out pencil out to their in their favor at the end of the day we live in urban cincinnati right now uh, my wife said to me the other day like well let's see what we can do here and i was like yep that makes a lot of sense you you give a lot of practical good advice in your book which you can get on kindle the frugal homesteader living the good life on less do you have any other like, do you have a blog or, a, I mean, everyone has eight podcasts nowadays. How many podcasts do you have? <laughs> I don't do a podcast. No, my my no. rural internet is generally so slow that I'm pretty sure carrier pigeon would be more efficient than internet uploads. <laughs> I know if you put John Moody um, into YouTube, you find a couple of your talks because I listened to him this week. So, yeah, you know, I have a website, which is johnwmoody.com. Um, I don't blog for myself generally. Obviously, if you, friend me, if you friend me on Facebook, I make a lot of like mini blog posts on my Facebook page. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I write for a ton of different magazines and I speak at a bunch of conferences. Uh, you know, so that's a lot of where like, People want to connect with me. I'm going to be um, headlining Layman's, which is a big homesteading self-sufficiency store up in Northeast Ohio. I'm going to be headlining their fall festival. I speak at the Mother Earth News conferences um, that are all around the country. Uh, speak at a bunch of other events and the like too. And then I write for a bunch of websites and magazines like Hobby Farms and chicken. I just started writing for a company called Roots and Harvest. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to find stuff I make. Um, and I think what, you know, I've had so much interest, um, actually up in Cincinnati, there's a farmer up that way who really wants me to come up maybe like either for an extended weekend or maybe one weekend a month for like three months and give it, you know, do a series of like, Saturday mini conferences with people. Do it, man. Um, just to really help them develop skills and mindset. Let me end with this question. What are some of the spiritual benefits of homesteading? And what are some reasons people should consider pursuing this just from a biblical perspective? Adam was responsible for husbandry mm-hmm. of the created order and, and stewardship of it. You know, so, so like there, there's just this, there's this innate biblical teaching that we are to steward creation, you know, um, you know, creation itself, not virtual reality. So much of our modern work isn't real. It's moving around digits and stuff that don't even actually exist. So I'm the person who didn't spiritually benefit from having to try and grow a plant. You know, you talk about a humbling experience, um, there's a guy I'm friends with whose who's net worth is probably more than I will ever make in my entire lifetime. And maybe even more than like I will ever make and all my kids will ever make. Like that kind of like wealthy guy. Mm-hmm. And he grows a small garden, um, you know, where where his one house is. And he's told me that it's, one of the most rewarding things he does and also one of the most humbling Mm. 
Mm-hmm. You, you know, and, and here is a guy who basically like is, is, you know, he would be probably in the top, like half of 1% of all people in America. A- and so, you know, there's, there's direct spiritual maturity benefit to trying to raise animals and grow food. Um, you know, and then there's just, you know, the biblical admonition to work with your hands. Um, you know, it, there's just something tremendous about sending your kids outside or walking outside and picking a pepper off a plant rather than picking it off a shelf at Kroger. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, it's just not at all the same. And then there's also just, you know, the practical wisdom in the Bible of, you know, having these stores, having these resources for when trouble comes along. Um, there, there's in one of C.S. Lewis's books, he's discussing a writer. Um, I don't know if it was Tennyson or somebody who was very vocally critical of the government. Um, just, you know, like would tear into the government, you know, in his talks and in his writing. And C.S. Lewis um, remarked and observed that the only reason that guy could do that was because of his independence and self-sufficiency. You know, because like, if you're dependent on this system, it's very, very hard to speak honestly about it. (laughs) You know, you you and I talked about this some, you know, like one reason you are so free to kind of be as bold as you are is because people can't break your knees. They can't fire me though. They try, You, you know? So like if I have four hogs that, that can be butchered at any time, in a garden full of vegetables and three or four or more months worth of stored food and a bunch of skills to make different things and some passive income from my work and businesses, you you have a, you you know, it's a lot easier to be honest (laughs) (laughs) because you're not, you know, I've seen this um, since I went to seminary and graduated from seminary and a lot of guys I went to seminary with, they went to, you know, they went to Christian schools when they were young. Then they went to a Christian school for college, you know, where usually their major was Bible. And I hate to use to say, you know, say it's worthless, but to a large degree, you know, it's like a worthless degree. And then they go to seminary and then they become a pastor and they get married and, you know, because they want to be fruitful and multiply, they have all these kids and they have no real skills to provide for this family. And then the church eats them up, chews them up and spits them out. And now they're like working at McDonald's trying to support a wife and 14 kids. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's such a, you know, it's um just such an imprudent way to move people into ministry, you know, from kids into ministry, um, you you just really want to have that ability as much as possible to provide for your family. You know, you ask kind of part of what motivated me is, you know, like I'm biblically responsible for my household. And Paul says, 
that if I cannot provide for the members of my household, I am worse than an unbeliever. And then he, and when he says that, he's talking about our extended homes too, not just our wife and our kids, but yeah. our in, in-laws. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so when you begin to think about that, you, you know, um, I'm, I'm res- like, if, if we run out of toilet paper, because I did not think to have extra on hand and that disrupts my home and puts my kids at risk, God judges me for that. If, if I don't make good planning as it teaches in Proverbs to bring in the stores of the harvest so that we have supplies as needed, you know, God holds me accountable as the man of my household, the one he has graciously put in charge for my management and how I dispense with those affairs. You know, so the big thing, it's like when we first moved out here, we live at the end. We live off a side road, off a dead end road, off a gravel extension up a hillside. And so if, if our area loses power, we ain't going to get power back forever. If it's like, (laughs) you know, like we just ain't going to have power forever. So the first thing I put into our house was a wood burning stove. Because if we lose power, I'm going to have to go live with my in-laws until they fix it, which is not biblical. (laughs) You you know, so, so like I, I looked at what were the things likely to, you know, be negatives for our family and, you know, begin to just step by step, make sure that I was providing for my family as the Bible requires. Amen. Well, man, I really appreciate you coming on. And I I want to uh, commend all of our listeners to check out the Frugal Homesteader, which is on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle. There's also a paperback version if that's what you prefer. And we'll stick your uh, website in the uh, show notes. That's if someone wants to do coaching or have you come out and speak, they can contact you that way. Correct? Yep. Through the website's great or find me on Facebook. Shouldn't be too hard. That's John Moody, M-O-O-D-Y. And until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Amen. 